So the last three weeks, we've been uh, talking about the subject of heaven. And uh, one of the main points of the last three weeks have been a bit uh, deconstructionist, in a, in a sense, where we've been trying to teach this congregation that this world is not all that matters, and that there's, there's God's heaven, God's space that's, that, um, that is breaking into this world. And, and we get so... Um, uh, seduced by San Francisco. And, and one of the reasons the last three weeks have been uh, kind of hard-hitting is that we've been trying to, like, rip that apart from us, like, thinking that this world is all that matters. But we've also said that living with a, a heaven orientation is how heaven actually breaks into earth, how when we pray that prayer on earth as it is in heaven, we live towards or oriented towards heaven, and heaven breaks into earth. So a lot of the questions that we've been getting the last few weeks is, so what does that mean for a huge part of our modern lives? What does that mean for our work? And most people in San Francisco are here to work. And so this morning I invited my very, very good, close, dear friend, John Mark Comer from Portland, Oregon. He's a pastor of a church called Bridgetown Church there to teach on this subject. He just has, he has a new book that just came out called Garden City, and he, he just writes great books and they're just so well designed as well, which I appreciate a lot. And we've had it for self the last few weeks. Um, and it's a great book on work, rest, and the art of being human. One of the best people that I know to speak on this topic. So would you please welcome John Mark Comer. Hey, uh, good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you. So good to be here in my other favorite city in the world. Don't tell my church back home. But it is so good to be here. I'm from the land where summer is gorgeous in my city. And then the other nine months of the year, it's 55 degrees and raining. So I was really looking forward to the sun and 75 degrees, and here you are letting me down. But other than that, so happy to be here. Honest to God, I love, love, love your pastor and all of your leaders and, and you guys. It is such a joy, really an honor to be with you this weekend and in the coming week. Um, turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, uh, we're going to jump right in because we have a ton of ground to cover. And Dave, as he said, asked me to chat about basically a biblical theology of work. So biblical theology is actually a technical term in scholarship. There are two basic ways of doing theology. There's systematic theology, maybe you know about that, and then biblical theology, which is where you take an idea and you run it through the narrative arc of the scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So we'll do that this morning. We'll start in the beginning, and then don't worry, we won't read the whole Bible but we'll read a lot of it, and by the end, we'll wrap up at the end. So, Genesis chapter 1, and one more time, let's pray. God, you are here and you are now. So good to be with you. If nothing else happens today, just to be in your presence, God, that is more than enough. But we ask that on top of that, you would speak to reality San Francisco. God, I ask that you would shape me and co-opt me into a, an agent, a conduit, a medium of blessing. And I just ask that you would bless this church today a blessing in the Hebrew language, in the Genesis kind of worldview, is this life-giving ability to procreate, to make more life. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase the number. And so I pray that 
you would bless this church, that you would infuse and impregnate this community of sons and daughters of the Father with a life-giving ability to procreate, to make more life in this city and around the world. So Holy Spirit, come. Only you can do that, not me. Not even a teaching, only you. So come, Holy Spirit. We're ready, we're here, we're waiting. Amen. No matter what your ethnic background or your religious background or where you come from on the socioeconomic spectrum, we all ask the core question, what does it mean to be human? Or put another way, what is the meaning of life or the purpose of life? Is there any? Every religion and form of spirituality, every ism in the late modern age comes up with some kind of an answer to this primal, ancient question. Even atheism essentially has an answer. There is no meaning or purpose to life. It is a glorious accident, therefore life is what you make of it. In the church, we usually give a spiritual-sounding answer. I think of the Westminster Catechism from a century or two ago. Maybe you know this line. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Does that sound familiar to you? And I hear that and I think, I mean, sure. Like, who's going to just, if you're a follower of Jesus, who's going to disagree with that? No, it's not. But... The scriptures actually open with a very different kind of answer to the question, one that is, I don't know, a lot more down to earth, literally. Genesis chapter 1, if your Bible is open, look down at verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, and here it is again, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. There it is, right on page one, staring you and me in the face all along. Why did God create human? Quote, so that they may rule, end quote. In Hebrew, it's even more explicit. It can be translated, in order that they may rule. Now, this language of ruling is a bit strange and alien to you and I in the late modern world. I mean, I doubt the last time your boss asked you what you were doing, you said, you know, just ruling over my email or, or whatever. I mean, maybe that's how you talk. It is San Francisco. I don't know. But... <laughs> the word rule is radah in Hebrew. Can you say that? Radah, well done. And it means to rule or to reign or to have dominion. It is the language of royalty. So in the story, Adam and Eve are created as God's king and God's queen to rule over the world on God's behalf, gathering up the creation's praise and worship and giving it back to the creator God. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, a lot of people, and this is what I used to think, a lot of people think that to be made in the image of God means that we're like God. This was the dominant theory coming out of the Enlightenment. God is rational, we're rational, therefore that's what it means to be made in the image of God. 
That's actually not what it means. That idea is for the most part right. But we get that from the word likeness, not from the phrase the image of God. That phrase the image of God was a well-known idiom in the ancient Near East and it was used for the king and at times for the oligarchy of society. For example, in Egypt, Pharaoh was called Amun-Ra, or image of Ra, the sun god in the Egyptian pantheon. The name Ramses means Ra is the one who begot him. The king, in this worldview, was thought of as quasi-divine, as a priest-like mediator between the god or the goddess and Egypt, or Babylon, or Assyria, or whatever. And if you think about the implications of that kind of a worldview, it meant that everybody else was not the image of God, right? Just the king and his rich friends. Everybody else, it turns out, actually was more like cheap slave labor to do the king's bidding. So set over against ancient Near Eastern culture, this story was, and I would argue still is, in particular in a world where globalization is the norm, is subversive and provocative because it's saying that every single human being is made in the image of God. This is the democratizing of humanity. Regardless of gender, regardless of where, how much money you have or don't have, or ethnicity or education, you are all made in the image of God. This is God saying, I want all of you, not just the king, not just the elite, not just rich, white, educated men, I want all of you to rule over my world together. And we feel, millennia later, we feel this call deep in our DNA. I mean, from our youth, we want to do something that matters, right? Ask a child, ask a four or five or six-year-old, what do you want to be when you grow up? No kid says, I'm thinking insurance. <laughs> or I don't know, I feel a pull to tax law or whatever. Nothing wrong with either job. If that's yours, fantastic, thank you, well done. But kids say stuff like, you know, astronaut or police officer or ballerina. In my house, ninja is a favorite, as is Jedi Knight. Um, sorry, but I think that one's taken. But this is what kids dream of. Why is that? I mean, think about the mythology of the modern world in film and literature, in movie after movie, in novel after novel. It is the exact same formulaic story over and over again. Some child born into abject poverty and obscurity and nobody does something heroic and as a result becomes a prince or a princess, a king or a queen, becomes a ruler. For example, Star Wars. In my opinion, all great preaching at some point comes back to Star Wars. That's right, whoever that was over there, Tarek, amen. Um, so think about Star Wars, Luke Skywalker, he is a poor orphan on a desert planet in the outer rim. He's a moisture farmer, for goodness sake. He doesn't even farm food, he farms for water to farm for food. He's a nobody, but he does something heroic, and guess what? Your mom is actually a queen. You're actually royalty. Like, it's the same story. Every Disney movie, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, over and over and over again. Why is that? Because I would argue it taps into a deep, visceral, incumbent part of our humanity. All of us are born with the desire for meaning and significance. Nobody just wants to take up space, another carbon footprint. Nobody just wants to work and amass stuff and retire with enough money for a Comcast subscription. 
particular if you're a millennial. We want to change the world. Why is that? I mean, it's not evolutionary. That paradigm does not make sense of the drive. Why? Why? I would argue it's because God put it there. That drive, that thirst, that unquenchable desire to matter, I would argue God put it there. Now, of course, that drive is warped by sin. It's bent out of shape by ego and ambition and fear and insecurity and greed and on down the list, absolutely. But still, I would argue that in its embryotic state, that desire for meaning, for significance, to matter, that it was put in your DNA by the Creator because you and I were made to rule. And ruling is one heck of a job. So one Hebrew scholar I read recently translated this word rada or rule this way, to actively partner with God in taking the world forward. How good is that? So it turns out that ruling is a lot like what you and I call work. But that said, it's not just any kind of work that we're called to. Turn the page to Genesis chapter 2, and let's keep going. Genesis chapter 2, this time skip down to verse 8. The story goes on. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. That's a Hebrew word meaning delight. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, listen to this next paragraph. Don't tune out. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah. Where there is gold, the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Notice all of that stuff in the paragraph from 10 to 14. The gold of that land is good. Apparently there's not good gold somewhere. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Have you ever read this? It's January 1st, read through the Bible in a year, Genesis 1 and 2 on the schedule. Have you ever read this and in all honesty, before you and God thought to yourself, who freaking cares? Why is this in the Bible? I don't need to know about Havilah and the Euphrates and the Tigris River. This doesn't even exist anymore. Why is this in the Bible? Listen, listen. The writer of Genesis is saying that the garden is made up of raw materials. A tree, a forest, a river, sun, wind, water, energy, or precious minerals deep in the earth's crust. And humans' job is to, quote, work it and then take care of it. Let's take each phrase in turn. First off, he is to work it. This word work is abad in Hebrew, and it can be translated cultivate or develop or draw out something's potential. The one and only Tim Keller defines work this way, quote, rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. That is so well said, right? This rhythm is found in all sorts of work. When a farmer takes soil and seed and rearranges it into a crop with 
life with food and drink for celebration and community. When a designer takes a shape and a color palette and a typeface or material and rearranges it into something coherent and beautiful. When an entrepreneur takes an idea and a team and a technology and rearranges it into something that makes the world a better place. All of this is the work of cultivation. In fact, our word culture comes straight from this idea of cultivation. Good culture is the result of even better people like you and like me, hard at work to take the raw materials of planet Earth and to make it into something even better, to make it into an Eden-like place. So, first, we are to work it. Secondly, if you're taking notes, we are to take care of it, end quote. In Hebrew, the word there is shamar. And it can be translated to guard or to watch over or to protect. So Adam and Eve were environmentalists. And regardless of what your political leaning is, I mean, this is San Francisco, so I think I know, but (laughs) we should be too. We live in an ongoing tension, I think never more acute than right now in human history, to both work the earth and take care of the earth. This fine line, this tightrope between development of the raw materials of the planet and stewardship or environmentalism or whatever you want to call it, that is at the heart of the human call. So work it and take care of it. Now listen, please listen. This means that we are not just called to any kind of work to pay the bills. Some work doesn't do this at all. Some work is not creative. In fact, some work is actually destructive to the earth, to the local economy, global economy, to the developing world, to the human brain, to marriage, family, sexuality, whatever it is. Up at my church in Bridgetown, we're in the middle of an ongoing conversation over the last year or two around labor ethics with globalization, the reality that most of our clothing is made by slaves. We live in a world now where one in six human beings work in the fashion industry, tens and tens of millions of which, most of which are garment workers who make less than $3 a day. The fashion industry is now the number two pollutant in the world after the oil industry. You're like, I drive a hybrid. Yeah, but you have 45 shoes. Doesn't work that way, you know? So this, wow, that's not creative. And I'm I'm not saying that if you work in the fashion industry, like, repent, but maybe, but, you know. (laughs) But that, that's not creative. That's destructive. That's not the kind of work that we are called to. We are called to a very specific kind of work, to make a garden-like world where image bearers can flourish and thrive no matter what part of the world they were born in or where they weigh in on the socioeconomic scale. I mean, after all, you and I are just supposed to continue what Adam and Eve started in the beginning. Here's what you have to understand. When you think about the Garden of Eden, the garden was dynamic, not static. Or put another way, it was a project, not a product, meaning it was designed to go somewhere. So when you think of Adam and Eve in the garden, don't picture them, you know, in a hammock on the beach, sipping Mai Tais and reading Vogue like that. Don't picture that. It's not vacation. Picture Adam and Eve hard at work in the middle of a forest or a river building a world together. When you imagine the Garden of Eden, don't picture in your mind's eye, don't picture Dolores Park, all right? The place that you set in the middle for the kids or whatever, little yuppie urban kid thing and a path around the edge and like, no, no, no. And God, it's not like God says, okay, Adam, here's a lawnmower and some clippers. Keep it nice, will you, buddy? 
No, picture, picture Yosemite or something like that. Picture a wild, untamed wilderness, Canada or whatever. <laughs> Bears, wolves, and a couple of socialists. There's your country. We have a ton of Canadians in my city. I don't know. Anybody in the house from? No, they don't make it quite this far south. Okay, a couple of you. <laughs> Canadians are just all so nice. They're like, eh? <laughs> Gotta love Canadians. Everything is a question. Um, anyway, moving on. <laughs> that was good, actually, though. So when you think of the garden, though, seriously, think of a wild, untamed wilderness teeming with beauty, but with no order. No infrastructure, no roads or bridges in, no city, no government, no civilization. And God says, Adam and Eve, listen together, go make a world. That's why when you get to the end of the Bible, to the Revelation, the last two chapters, which you've read over the last couple of weeks, are dripping with allusion after allusion to the Garden of Eden. In fact, turn there one more time. Turn to Revelation 22, from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. Revelation 22, you read this over the last week or two or three. I just want to read a paragraph one more time. This is John's vision of the future reality. If you want to call it heaven, if you want to call it the age to come, if you want to call it the new heaven, the new earth, in the language of Jesus, the renewal of all things, whatever label you want to put on it, listen to this vision. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign, or that can be translated rule, forever and ever. How beautiful and compelling is that? But notice all of the language, the tree of life, the river, quote, no longer will there be any curse. Quote, they will rule forever and ever. This is Genesis language. This is Adam and Eve language. This is ruler language. The writer John is saying that the future is kind of like a return to the past, to Eden. But notice, it's not a garden anymore. It's a garden-like city. Why? I mean, you would think that if Jesus' agenda is to fix everything that's gone awry, you would think that the story would end back where it started with Adam and Eve and now a whole bunch of other people in the garden, naked and unashamed. But that's not it. It's similar, but different. Instead of a garden, it's a garden-like city with walls and gates and streets and dwellings, with culture, food and drink and art and music. It's all there. Why is that? It's because the garden was never supposed to stay a garden. It was always supposed to become a garden-like city. This reality, San Francisco, is what you and I were created for. This is our meaning and our purpose in life. This is what it means to be human. Now, you still alive out there? Don't worry, Dave's coming back soon. 
Let's take a step back now and together talk about what all of this means for tomorrow morning when you wake up and go to work. For starters, it means that what has been called the sacred-secular divide needs to be smashed into a million pieces. Are you familiar with this language? Sounds like, yeah, at least a couple of you are down, right? Well done. <laughs> if you're not, um, the sacred-secular divide is this ancient idea. It goes back to the time before Jesus. It's Neoplatonic. It's incredibly popular, in particular in the West, in particular in the church. And the long and short, this is a gross oversimplification, but basically the idea is there is a sacred or a spiritual world on one hand, and then on the other side, there is a secular or a physical world, and the sacred world, it matters to God, and it matters in the grand scheme of heaven and hell and forever, but the secular world, honestly, it really doesn't. Now, this is the dominant way of thinking in the Western world, even in the church world. The problem is that by this definition, in this kind of a worldview, most of your life is secular. Do the math. All of your work for the most part, unless if you're a pastor or a missionary or a nonprofit, maybe you get in there kind of, sort of. <laughs> most of your life is secular, and therefore, by default, most of your life doesn't really matter to God. Most of life is not spent here at church in worship or in a conversation about the gospel, as beautiful as those moments are. Most of life is spent grocery shopping or walking your dog or brushing your teeth or reading a novel at the park or doing yoga or eating a burrito and then feeling bloated afterwards. <laughs> but less so if you just finished doing yoga. This, this is the stuff of everyday life. And the damage that the sacred-secular divide has done to the church, and I would argue to culture at large in the West, is nothing short of catastrophic. And here is why. Please hear me. All of life matters to God. Every square inch. The problem with the sacred-secular divide, even though it's popular in the church, is that what it does is it breaks up your life into a thousand tiny, itsy-bitsy compartments. You have your work box over here, and then your money box, and then your entertainment box, and your sexuality box, and your friendship box, and your family box, and your God box, your church box. And God becomes just another compartment in your already over-busy, stressed-out, go-go-go life. Another line item in your budget, another two-hour time slot on your iCal, Sunday, 10.30, 12.30, there you have it. So many people don't see the connection between discipleship to Jesus and being an engineer. Between following Jesus and being a designer or a project manager or a parent or whatever it is that you do with your life. So many people see work as over here and Jesus, faith, church, spirituality as over here as two disparate, separate things and tragically, what happens is that their work is often not shaped by the way of Jesus. Like, I know a lot of really good Jesus-loving people who give a lot of money to the kingdom of God, but what they actually do for a living is kind of at odds with the way of Jesus. It doesn't matter if you tithe 90% of your income. If how you made that income was not creative, it was destructive, it's not the stuff that God has in mind. Something is off. 
Or then on the flip side, people have faith and spirituality and love Jesus deeply, but don't know how to connect that to their everyday life. So we have to get back to this deep, wide, panoramic, Hebraic worldview, this kind of view of life where God is with you every second of the day, where it all matters. For whatever reason, people push back on this idea. Whenever I teach on it, it's like there's a whole bunch of people that love it and then a whole bunch of people that are reticent. I think some people like to have work over here and God over here at arm's length. It's just easier that way. But this is disastrous to the kind of life that Jesus has in mind for his disciples in the kingdom of heaven. One of the things I like to tell people who push for the sacred-secular divide is that in the Hebrew language, there is no word for spiritual. Did you know that? So go this afternoon, not now. I know you have your iPhone, but you have like four of them. This is San Francisco, but not now. Go this afternoon, BibleGateway.org. It's an online concordance. Search the word spiritual in Genesis to Malachi, what you and I call the Old Testament, what Jesus called the Bible of his day. Search the word spiritual. Guess what? It's not there. Your search yielded no results. Even when you get to the New Testament, it's really not there very often. It's not there in the teachings of Jesus. It's really only in Paul. This is a whole other teaching, but Paul basically means something different than what most people mean by spirituality today. That's a whole, don't have time for that. So I think that if you were to walk up to Jesus when he was here and say, Jesus, how's your spiritual life? First off, that's weird, but second, I'm pretty sure it's good. I'm pretty sure it's, it's fantastic. But my guess is that Jesus would, would have said, wait, what, excuse me? You mean my life? Because all of my life is spiritual. Now, to say, to say that everything is spiritual, just to nuance this, is not to say that everything is good. No, some stuff is flat out evil. And it's not to say that everything is of equal value. Some stuff, there's no way around it, matters a whole lot matter, more than other stuff. It's just to say that all of your life matters to God. That we live in a world with absolutely no compartments. Because for Jesus and the writers of Scripture, the point of life, and you've been learning this over the last month, is not to evacuate planet Earth and go somewhere else called heaven. No, it is the reunion, as Dave said so brilliantly, of heaven and earth. And our job in the here and now is to join in the garden project, to get dirt under our fingernails as we work for a garden-like world here and now and in the future. It's about spiritual life crashing into all of life, and it is about waking up to a God-saturated reality. Now, that said, are we tracking? Are we still good? Yeah, okay. Now, before we can end, now I want to shift gears. We have to deal with the elephant in the room. All of this talk about the sacred-secular divide and about work and how we were made to rule, it all raises the question, okay, how do I square this with the last couple of weeks about teaching on heaven, about, with what Dave said and Francis said about living for heaven and not for this earth? Dave did a fantastic job of teaching about how heaven isn't someplace up in the sky. As I said, it's here, it's on earth, it's a city. It's this very same world remade with Jesus at the center of it. But still, it raises the question, what in the world does my work now in what the scripture writers call this age, what does that have to do with how I will live forever and what the scripture writers call the age to come? So, to end, three thoughts. If you're taking notes, write this down. If not, just sit there and feel guilty. First off, (laughs) 
First off, our work in this age is practice for our work in the age to come. The philosopher Dallas Willard, a hero of mine, said this life is, quote, training for reigning. Now that is so cheesy. I know, so cheesy. But it's spot on. Right now, this life it is training. Every day when you get up and go to work, you are learning the skills. I am learning the skills that we will need to play our part in the future. The Bible opens with God calling human beings to rule over the world. It's a short detour that's about this long where we muck everything up. And then it ends with this vision of that actually coming to pass and even going forward. We read that line in 22, they will reign forever and ever. That language, they will reign, they will rule, is used all over Revelation from beginning to end. So God is looking for people he can rule the world with. Right now, we are becoming those kinds of people. Learning how to fight laziness with hard work, and on the flip side, learning how to fight workaholism with Sabbath. Learning how to handle money and sex and power. Learning how to thrive in the digital age where addiction is rampant. Every day when you go to work, you are learning the people skills and work ethic and self-control and humility and wisdom and self-awareness that you will need to rule the world forever. And I would argue that you're not just learning the skills of character, you're actually learning the skills of the craft. So stick with me for a minute and think about this. The scriptures are perfectly clear. The future is here on earth in a city. As far as we can tell, we will live in a house or an apartment or a flat, whatever. We will eat food, we will drink water, coffee, wine, whatever. We will need human beings to make all of that stuff. So let's just say, uh, for sake of argument, that you're a chef and you're good at what you do and you love it. Well, who's to say that you won't do it and love it forever? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. If so, then think about it. As you go to work each day and hone your skill, you're not just making a better world now. You're learning the skills to one day in the future make the best world. That phrase, you can't take it with you, is true for sure, but it's also a bit misleading because it's only true of money and stuff. You can't take your car or that sweet new pair of shoes or whatever with you. But you can and will take the person that you are becoming with you into God's future. And who you become is by far your most valuable asset. Secondly, here's the next thought. Some of the good work we do will actually last into the age to come. I really believe that. In John's vision of the garden city here in Revelation, he writes, there's a great line, I'll read it to you, quote, the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it, into the city. Now, this is an enigmatic statement. I don't have time to unpack all of it, but long story short, most scholars think that it means that all good work, the accumulation of thousands of years of culture making, will somehow be brought into the new Jerusalem. It would not be heaven without tacos. <laughs> right? I mean, come on. Or coffee, or a bicycle, or whatever it is. My favorite, one of my favorite restaurants 
in the world is Gracias Madre just nearby? Fans, yes? No? Yes, well done. So I'm staying at this little place. I'm here all week, actually. And I'm staying at this little place right around the corner from it. And I said to Dave this morning, I'm going to eat at Gracias Madre every single day. He thought I was joking. I was not joking. I'm going to eat there every single day. There's no doubt. I have faith in God. I have faith to believe that their vegan cashew nachos will be in the age to come. There's just, there's just no doubt. I have faith. I believe. Believe with me, will you? So whatever it is... The beautiful things that image bearers come up with, I really believe will find a place in God's new world. So don't believe me, Mirzlof Wolf, who is a theologian and philosopher from Yale, he puts it this way. The noble products of human ingenuity, whatever is beautiful, true, and good in human cultures will be cleansed from impurity, perfected and transfigured to become a part of God's new creation. They will form the building materials from which the glorified world will be made. When you imagine the age to come, and Dave did a great job with this, don't imagine, you know, up on a cloud, disembodied spirit, whatever. No, imagine Jesus at the center of everything. Imagine Yosemite. Imagine an almond milk latte. Imagine listening to the new Coldplay single. Imagine riding a bicycle. Imagine a meal with your family and friends. Imagine all the good, beautiful, and true things that image bearers have come up with over the millennia of human history. It's the graffiti. It's all of the evil, the ugly, and the untrue stuff that will go away forever. And we have to wrestle with that, particularly when we think about work. Because there's a lot of human work that frankly will not make it into the age to come. Stuff like war and violence, the exploitation of the poor, opulent waste, damage to the environment, porn, anything by Justin Bieber. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding on that last one, um, kind of. So if this is the kind of stuff that you're giving your life to, that's what your life is all about. That's what you're living for. Then honestly, in the age to come, you will have little or nothing to show. But on the flip side, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. The hope is that some of our work, some of the stuff that you go out and do and make and think and write and create will survive Judgment Day and go on to find a place in the new creation that somehow, I don't know how, don't ask me, but somehow God will find a way to integrate it into his new world. N.T. Wright, the preeminent New Testament theologian of our time, says this, quote, What you do in the present, by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not just simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it all behind altogether, as the hymn so mistakenly puts it. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. So back to the example of the chef. If you cook a meal, that meal obviously will not last into the age to come unless if it has a lot of sodium. And it's fireproof too. It's just not, not going to make it. But that recipe just might. If that doesn't make you want to get really good at whatever it is you do, I have no clue what will. Finally, last thought is this. Know that all good work done in this age 
will be rewarded in the age to come. It's what you have to grasp and grapple with today. Please hear me now. There is far more continuity between this life and the life to come than most people think. If your paradigm is, I'm here, I'm in a body, I'm kind of a lousy person, one day I die, I go to heaven, and I'm Mother Teresa, boom. That, that's just, that's not right. Popular, it's not right. There's far more continuity between now and later, between who you are now and who you become later, between what you do now and what you will do later. A huge chunk of the teachings of Jesus, particularly the parables of Jesus, if you've read the four Gospels, are about work, commerce, trade, money, management, employer-employee relationships, really down-to-earth everyday stuff. And a lot of them basically end by saying something to the effect that how you work now has a direct effect on how you will work in the future. So I think of the parable, uh, there's one in Luke's gospel about a king who goes on a long journey. Before he goes away, he has three servants. He gives to one a mina, to another two minas, to another five minas. And he comes back a very long time later and he wants an accounting. All right, where's my money? How does the investment work? All of that stuff. And the first guy says, all right, you gave me one mina and here now I have five. And what does the king say? Well done, you take charge of five cities. Five minas, five cities. A mina was a, a unit of measurement. It was a, a, num- a dollar number. Responsibility now, more responsibility later. So in Jesus' paradigm, there is a one-to-one reciprocity between how we work now and the kind of work we will do forever. Now, of course, you and I read this and assume that take charge of five cities is a metaphor. And it, and it probably is. 90% chance. But isn't that what Adam was supposed to do all along? To rule? To take a garden and make it into a city? What if it's not a metaphor? Either way, the point still stands. It's what Jesus was getting at. The reward for work well done in this age isn't a mansion and a Maserati in the sky. Sorry. As if the best God can do is acquiesce to capitalism's perversion of the American dream. Okay, here you go, the Ferrari, well done. (laughs) Nah, it just doesn't ring like Jesus to me, I'm sorry. No, the reward for work well done is more work and more responsibility in God's new world. And listen, if that's like, oh no, seriously, I want a vacation. Listen, (laughs) listen, this is a good thing. Trust me, you want this. This is good and beautiful. Even if you don't have your dream job, even if you, in fact, hate your job right now, you can do it for a reward. I just want to end on that note. Turn over to Colossians, just about half an inch to the left, right in the middle of the New Testament. This is one of many letters written by Paul in the first century. Colossians chapter 3, and this is where I want to kind of slow down and wrap up the teaching. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, and after three chapters of kind of in-depth, heady theology, as always, he he lands the plane, kind of gets down to nuts and bolts. So in chapter 3, verse 18, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Dave will teach you about that later. Husbands, that was a joke, he probably won't. Husbands, love your wives, do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. Fathers, do not embitter your children. And then listen to this, chapter 3, verse 22. You all there? Yeah, great. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, what in the world? Is Paul condoning slavery here? Well, first off, no. Secondly, even if he was, um, the slave trade in the ancient Mediterranean was very different. So don't think of the African-American slave trade, which was horrific, or what's going on right now in Southeast Asia and India, as terrible as that is. This is not based on ethnicity. It's not, at least most of the time, for life. But still, slavery was a really lousy thing. If you were a slave, your job was mundane and boring and ordinary. You were cooking, you were cleaning, you were out in the field all day with no control over your work at all. And listen, it's to slaves that Paul writes this next part, 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Passion, skill, intelligence, knowledge, training, with all of your heart. As if you are working for the Lord, for Jesus, not for human masters, your boss. Since you know that you will receive, listen, an inheritance from the Lord as a what? Reward. Because it is the Lord Messiah that you are serving. So whatever you do, some of you are here tonight or this morning, a ton of you, and you have your dream job. And you love it. You get up every day and you're like, oh man, you ache for it. Others of you here hate it. You know all about the disappearance of the middle class, the new oligarchy that is the educated, technologically savvy West Coast and East Coast oligarchy of America, and then everybody else at the bottom. You know, and you're on the wrong side of that story. You hate what you do. Listen, either way... You can do what you do for a reward from God himself. All you have to do is to do it with what, what the Hebrews call holy intent. There's this Hebrew word kavana. After the temple was destroyed, Judaism had to reinvent itself because how do you worship God with no priesthood, no sacrificial system, and no temple? And so one of the answers was this idea of kavana. You do whatever it is you do, most of the time your work, with holy intent. So you say, God, as I design this app, as I make this latte, as I parent this child, as I start this restaurant, as I manage this project, as I oversee whatever, man, I do this with holy intent. I do this unto you. And so I take it to the next level. I don't do bare minimum. I don't clock out the minute my shift is over. No, I'm in and I'm in all the way because this isn't for my boss. This isn't for a paycheck. This isn't to look cool. This isn't to climb out of my whatever sector. No, this is for I do this unto you, no matter what it is. So even if your work is not sexy or glamorous, you're not a entrepreneur, a filmmaker, or model, or whatever it is, the kind of stuff that our culture is always aspiring to. Even if you are a line chef at the back of a fast food restaurant, you can do what you do as unto the Lord. And guess what? You will receive a reward from Jesus himself. The great news is Jesus pays really well. <laughs> Bad news is you don't get your first paycheck until you die, but that's <laughs> a whole other story. But Jesus will reward all work that is done in his name. 
no matter what it is. If it's done as an act of service and worship to God and humanity. Because if you are faithful, if you are mina, even if you only have one with what you do now, with your work now, then the age to come you will rule. So to end, and thank you for your patience, to end tomorrow morning as you crawl out of bed and go to the office or the job site or the studio or the classroom or the living room, or the coffee shop, whatever it is that you do with your 24 hours, please, please, please don't just get up and go make money and get off work and go do something else. Please, whatever it is that you do, may you realize you're not just starting a new company or designing a condo tower or raising a child. You are ruling. You are being human. And your work as a nurse or engineer or barista or teacher or full-time parent or whatever might not feel like much in the grand scheme of things, or maybe it does, I don't know. But it is. It matters because all of life matters. And when you're there in your cubicle or at the coffee shop, your laptop open, or wherever you are in the classroom, know that you are not alone, that God is with you. There are no compartments. Jesus is after every square inch of your life, every second of your day. He's with you. You're not alone because we live in a God-saturated world. Let's pray.